In this day and time, the preacher who handles God's Word has two choices. He can have a limited message and a big audience, or he can have a limited audience and the right message. And so I'd rather have that limited audience. And this kind of reminds me, not the size of the sanctuary, but just the gathering here. It kind of reminds me of a lot of times we've gathered with believers in overseas contexts, particularly on Sunday or other times where it's just a small group of people that know the Lord and we gather and have some special times of fellowship. Uh, Churches in Israel made up of Jewish believers in Jesus are small like this. Um, When when Brother Bishnu uh, gathers with the Christians in his uh, his store in Kathmandu on Sunday mornings and leads them in their small church, it's like this, probably smaller than this. Uh, and some of the others. So it's a blessed thing that we may be forced into seeing more and more of here in this country, but that's okay. That's okay. Um, The remnant is small, and it'll continue to be small, but God's Word is true, and we need it. The Bible says as we see the day of Jesus approaching, even more so is it important for us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. So let's remember that. And be encouraged. I do want to share with you. I got this email. Do you guys remember Brother James from Bangladesh that came and spoke here before? His daughter Esther is living with us back in North Carolina. We're trying to take care of her. He sent me this email this morning. says, Dear Brother, thank you for, for being uh, a part of Bangladesh. Today I am writing to, for you to pray for our security. Our country is under great threat by Islamic terrorists. They are killing targeted people every day. A well-wisher called me and asked me to please stay in a safe place. Also, some Christian leaders asked me to stop preaching and sharing the Bible outside. My wife seems very afraid. Please pray for us. So if you all could just be remember those brethren in prayer. They're very bold with the gospel there in a Muslim country, and it is a threat. And my advice to Brother James is to take a break. Lay low for a little while if you need to. It's okay. And so, um, just be in prayer for them. Um, Brother Bishnu, who has spoken here, he was here back uh, before Christmas, if you guys remember. Um, The Lord just provided a home. You know, one of the things they've been praying for for a while is a place to move. Uh, Their their home was damaged after the earthquake, and they are without water eight months out of the year. So every night he has to go out in his vehicle and try to find water from a well somewhere. They've been bathing out of buckets But the Lord provided a a house for them that was built after the earthquake, and he's moved in. And we as a ministry are helping to pay down the uh, principal on that building significantly. So I'm going to be wiring him some money next week. So it's, it's 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 an honor to be a part of that, and it's a place that's safe. It's a place where he can store all our printed materials. He has a newly dug well there. It's in a secure location, a place we can stay when we come over there. We don't have to go rent some other place out. And so, you know, that's that's the fruit of the church here, supporting our ministry. It enables us to come alongside and help. So he's in a real good situation. Uh, with the help we're going to give him, that's going to exhaust that earthquake relief fund that we did. So I'm glad to finally be done with that and to push forward in Nepal. Uh, next week, we're printing 30,000 copies of the Gospel of John in the Nepali language. Um, 
for distribution. So I'm excited about that. It, the fact that we have to do that again means that all the other ones we printed have been given out. So that's a good thing. And so it, it's only going to cost maybe $2,100 to print 30,000 copies. And that's the entire book of John with a color cover and everything. So I'm really excited about that. And that's knowing that the price of paper is higher than it's ever been in Nepal. And it's still relatively cheap. So those are a few things going on around the world uh, with folks you all have met. And just be in prayer for them. Uh, they really face trials and tribulations that we can't understand. I mean, we're starting to a little bit, but we still have a lot of blessings here we take for granted. So remember, the Bible says, remember those that are in bonds. Remember the brethren that are persecuted. As if we're sharing that persecution with them. It says that in Hebrews. So I want to encourage you to do that tonight. But really, I would just like to encourage you all tonight. There's a lot going on in the world today or in this country that is a source of discouragement. But we can find comfort in the Word of God. It doesn't matter how dark the days are or what the government says is this or what you can and can't do. We can find encouragement in the Word of God. And in the Psalms, in particular, the psalmist, when he wrote, was often in a place of great sorrow, great discouragement, great fear, great uh, frustration. And that's when he wrote. And he, the psalmist often communicated his feelings. He often communicated his frustrations with the Lord. He showed doubt. But in the course of these wrestlings, he remembered what he knew to be true. He remembered the promises of God. So we can find great comfort uh, in the Word of God, particularly in the Psalms. And I'd just like for you to turn in your Bible tonight to Psalm 11. I think Psalm 11 is very appropriate to what we see happening around us here in our country. But let me say a word about the Psalms in general. If you you all have ever studied the book of Revelation, John is instructed to write down three things. We can know the outline for the book of Revelation because Jesus gives it right there in the first chapter. John's told, told to write three things. The things you have seen. John saw a vision of Jesus Christ and His glory as the one walking amongst the lampstands, the prince and the, pre, the high priest of the church. He's told to write the things which are and the things which shall be after the things that are. Those are the three things John is told to write. He records the things that were, which is Jesus Christ and that vision of Him. The things that are are a series of letters that he is instructed to write to seven churches that were actual churches in John's day. Jesus had a message for those seven churches. We often don't study them. We should because they're spoken directly, not just to the audience they were written to, but to Christians of all times and places. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So those letters to the seven churches in Revelation, they're actual churches that existed in John's day. He was actually writing to people in particular context at the end of the first century. But they are also examples of types of churches that exist in all periods of time during the church age. The church age began at Pentecost, and it ends when Christ raptures His church. Okay, God has a specific timetable for the people of Israel. And we can read about it in Daniel's prophecy. This kind of piggybacks on what Ricky was saying this morning. God's timetable started ticking for Israel 
when the commandment was given to Nehemiah to go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And that timetable started ticking. And we knew that after a specific period of time, Messiah would come and he would be cut off. And then the people of the prince that would come, which is Antichrist, would destroy the city. We know the Romans did that in AD 70. So the Jews should have known when their Messiah was coming. It was written plainly right there in the Word of God. Some of them did. Some of them knew the time was near. That's why Simeon was in the temple waiting. He knew, Daniel, he knew uh, 69 of Daniel's 70 weeks was up. It was time. Or it was getting close. Uh, Anna the prophetess knew. But they missed him by and large because they didn't know the Word of God. They were too busy listening to the rabbis. But when Messiah was cut off, God's clock or timetable for Israel paused. And God did a new thing. He raised up the church to provoke Israel to jealousy. The church is Jew and Gentile together, a special program. You see, there's one seven-year period, one week left on Israel's time clock for God to fulfill everything related to them. This is from Daniel 9. And right now, that time clock is paused, and we're in this great parenthesis called the church age. And when Christ comes and raptures His church, the church age ceases, and then God turns His attention back toward Israel as a nation, and that prophecy in Daniel continues ticking. We know that that last seven-year period in Daniel's timetable begins when Antichrist signs a peace treaty with the people of Israel. He deceives them into thinking that he is their Messiah. We often think of Antichrist as against Christ. But in reality, the Bible presents him more like pseudo-Christ. He's a substitute. He's deceptive enough that the rabbis actually think he is the Messiah. Of course, then he turns his back on him and reveals who he truly is, takes the mask off. And in the middle of that week, that seven-year period we call the tribulation, Antichrist reveals himself in his true nature of Satan, and he desecrates the temple that's been allowed to be rebuilt in Jerusalem, and then he turns on the Jews and tries to extinguish them. They have to flee during the tribulation, and they come to such a horrible place that they have to call out they recognize that they missed it with Jesus and they call upon Him and when they do, He'll come and save them. That's kind of the prophetic picture there in a nutshell. But um, uh, this church age we're in now um, is God's plan and purpose. We don't know when it's going to end. Christ could come for us at any time. How many times does the Bible say, be ready at any moment Christ could come? Now, if that's talking about the second coming where Jesus puts his foot on the Mount of Olives, then it makes no sense because we know specific things that have to happen before Jesus Christ comes back to redeem Israel. But it's not talking about that. It's talking about coming for the church in the air. That can take place at any time. And we need to be ready. But when John is writing these letters to the seven churches, not only are they actual churches and representatives of all types of churches, they're also a prophetic picture of the church age. So if you start with Ephesus and go all the way to Laodicea, looking back from this side of history, we see history spoken of before it happens. If you go back to Ephesus, Ephesus was the apostolic church. Laodicea is the apostate church that precedes the coming of Jesus in the clouds for the rapture. We're in the period of Laodicea today. But if you study history and study what God did in the persecutions of the early Christians and the, 
the Reformation and then the great missionary movements of the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, you see that history played out in those letters to the seven churches. It's amazing, the richness of God's Word. It's a very similar thing with the Psalms. The Psalms were written by actual people dealing with actual circumstances that they were encountering when they wrote them. David wrote most of the Psalms. The sons of Korah wrote some of the Psalms. Solomon wrote a couple. Moses wrote one of the Psalms. Psalms not, Psalm 90 was written by Moses. Uh, uh, um, Asaph uh, wrote a lot of the Psalms. So you have several different authors that were writing about things in their lives. If you go back to the, the first couple of Psalms, like Psalm 3, David wrote that when he was fleeing from Absalom, his son. Remember, Absalom took over the kingdom and was going after David. That's when David wrote Psalm 3. Okay, uh, Psalm 7 was, wrote, went, was written when Cush the Benjamite came out and cursed David as he was fleeing Jerusalem during the rebellion of Absalom. So you can see a lot of these psalms were written at specific times for specific purposes. Okay? Not only did they have immediate context, but these psalms were also written, or they represent the trials and tribulations that God's people throughout history could encounter at any time. We can read these and we can relate to them because we face similar circumstances. There are per persecuted Christians around the world who face things we can't imagine that can relate to Psalms in some ways that we can't because they face them. So they were actual people who wrote about actual situations. They represent the things God's people have to deal with in this wicked world and how we can cry upon God and find safety and find refuge in, his, in the shadow of His wings. But they're also prophetic. Just like the letters to the seven churches, the Psalms are prophetic. They have a prophetic picture of what it's going to be for the remnant of Israel during that terrible period of tribulation when God pours judgment upon this earth and Antichrist rises and comes to power. So there's an actual prophetic picture there. You know, this is the testimony of what it's going to be for the remnant of Israel during the days of tribulation. There's lots of references to the Antichrist in the Psalms. Uh, just off the top of my head, Psalm 5 and Psalm 10 provide very specific character sketches of Antichrist. Um, by the way, the individual who is spoken about the most in all of Scripture is Jesus the Messiah. Jesus. You know who is number two? More than any other person is spoken of in Scripture. Number two is Antichrist. There's more written about him than anybody else except for Jesus. The Jews should not only have recognized their Messiah when he came, they ought to recognize the false Messiah when he comes because there's so many details that have been given in the Old Testament. Isaiah. Isaiah is an interesting book. Its primary purpose is to reveal who Messiah, who Jesus is to the Jews. But it also contains details about Antichrist as relates to Messiah. If you go to the book of Daniel, the primary purpose of Daniel is to reveal who Antichrist is to the Jews. And it gives some details about Messiah as relates to Antichrist. You all know where the first mention of Antichrist is in the Scriptures? It's in the very same place we have the first mention of Jesus. Jesus. 
All the way back in the Garden of Eden, God made a promise where he pronounced a curse upon the serpent in Genesis 3. We call that in Latin the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. God said, I will put enmity between the serpent. He, he was speaking to the serpent. I'm going to just read it here. Genesis 3.15, if you want to turn there for a moment. My tongue's getting tied and I'm going to misquote it. I will put enmity between thee, that is the serpent, and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. Normally the seed comes from the man, right? Seed doesn't come from the woman. What is this a reference to? The woman has a seed? It's a reference to Messiah. Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus wasn't born from the seed of a man entering a woman like normally happens. He was born of a virgin. He was conceived of the Holy Ghost. So the woman has a seed. But the serpent also has a seed. It says here that the enmity would be between thy seed, the serpent's seed, and the woman's seed, which was the Messiah. It shall bruise thy heel like a snake. It would strike at the heel of Messiah. But Messiah would crush his head. So we have both Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and Antichrist, the anti-Messiah, written about right here. So he's a prominent figure in the Bible. Why would we want to study who Antichrist is and, and, and look into that with detail if we as the church aren't going to be here anyway? Well, it's important because there's not just an Antichrist. There's the spirit of Antichrist that's all over the place in the world today. John told the Christians that you've heard Antichrist will come. Oh, he will. But he's already here. The spirit of Antichrist is already here. And you can know it because the spirit of Antichrist always denies that Jesus Christ is God, that he came in the flesh. So it behooves us to study figures like the man of sin because if we know who he is, as revealed in the scriptures, we can recognize his false spirit as it's working amongst the churches and in the false teachings and things today in this church age. But he's a prominent figure in the Bible. And by studying him, we can know the spirit of Antichrist and better protect ourselves from being deceived. And I'm kind of getting off topic. The Psalms are interesting. A lot of them are a prophetic picture of what Israel, of, their, of how they will be fleeing Antichrist, of how they will be dealing with persecution in the tribulation and crying out to God to deliver them. Probably Psalm 102 is one of the best examples of this. And it's interesting because in this psalm, it, it uh, talks about its primary time frame as a time when the Lord shall build Zion and shall appear in His glory. Well, that's when He comes back. In Psalm 102 verse 18, this, it says, This or this psalm shall be written for the generation to come. And the people which shall be created shall praise the Lord. So the psalmist is, is revealing this is prophetic. This testimony is written primarily about a generation that's yet to come, one that God will create who will praise Him, who will recognize Him. So there is a prophetic element here. We know that where Jesus is concerned, there's lots of psalms that have a prophetic element related to Jesus Christ and the details of His life. Okay, In Psalm 22, David is writing about his own sufferings. His own sufferings, his own persecutions. We know David had many persecutions and sufferings during the entire saga whereby God rose him up to make him king. He had to flee Saul. He was kind and 
loyal to Saul, but Saul tried to kill him several times. He had problems coming to the throne, and then when he sinned, it brought all kinds of trouble. So David was constantly in distress and had enemies that hated him because he was a man after God's own heart. And in Psalm 22, David writes about his struggles. But we know that psalm is also a prophetic picture of Jesus Christ. We learn in that psalm that Messiah would be pierced in his hands and feet. That's an interesting prediction because it was written by David around 1000 B.C. And the Romans wouldn't invent crucifixion as a torture and 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 an execution for common criminals for several centuries. That wouldn't even be invented. So the Bible has a prophetic nature that even deals in minute detail. The Psalms talk about Messiah being rejected. Okay, The Psalms talk about Him in many details of His life. And so we know they're prophetic. And a lot of them, like I said, deal with Israel in the tribulation. Now, we're not concerned, uh, if our theology is right, we're not concerned with that period of tribulation. We believe Christ is coming for us. That fits the entire prophetic picture of the Scriptures. It's very clear testimony of the rapture in 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, and Revelation chapter 4. Um, Jesus talks about it um, in the Gospels. Uh, the whole imagery of Christ's relationship to the church as a bridegroom to his bride fits the Jewish wedding. So there's a lot of things there I won't get into. But as we look at the trials of what is coming for Israel, we can know in the Psalms how to pray for them, and we can know how we ourselves can cry out to God in times of trials that we face. And so I find that whole prophetic side of the Psalms very interesting. And I'm getting way off topic here, so I apologize rambling on. But let's look at Psalm 11 for a minute. And let's consider this. This is a time prophetically when the foundations of Israel will be overthrown and where they will flee as a bird into the wilderness where they will be pursued um, by those that love violence, pursued by the wicked. A time when God will rain down fire and brimstone from heaven. A time when they are looking for deliverance. We know all of that's going to happen in the tribulation. In fact, there's a subtle reference here in Psalm 11 to the sixth trumpet judgment in Revelation. So it does have a prophetic character. But we can look at it today and find the same comfort that the psalmist found when we look at what's happening to our country. Psalm 11, In the Lord, that's the word Jehovah, I am, the same name that God gave to Moses out of the burning bush. Anytime you see the word Lord in all capital letters in the Old Testament, it's the word Jehovah. If you see Lord with lowercase letters, it's Adonai in Hebrew. If you see God, it's Elohim. The names for God. Just a, just a side note there. In the Lord Jehovah I put my trust. How say you to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For lo, the wicked bend their bow and make ready their arrow upon the string, that they may privily shoot at the upright in heart. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, that's a picture of what it'll be for Israel in the tribulation when the nation is betrayed by Antichrist, when the temple is ransacked and the remnant is uh, pursued into the wilderness. You can read about these things in Revelation. 
That's a picture. A time when the wicked bends their bow, makes ready their arrow upon the string, and shoots at the righteous. A time when the foundations are destroyed and the righteous don't even know what to do. In a small way, that's what we face here in this country. We live in a day and time in American history when the wicked have bent their bow across the na- against the nation. When they've made their arrows ready upon the string to shoot at anybody that would take a stand for the God of our fathers or the Bible upon which this nation was founded. We live in a time when the wicked privily, that means uh, deceptively, uh, in, in, in a betraying fashion, um, in a way that's, uh, um, I'm trying to think of a word, a good slang word that wouldn't be inappropriate. Um, just, you know, how they, you know how these people do, you know, they're looking for trouble. They want to go in there and try to get you to bake a cake for them just to start up trouble. And when you want to take a stand and not bake a cake for a homosexual wedding, then they use that as an opportunity to, for a lawsuit. That's, that's what that means, that word privily there. That's what we are facing in this country, a time when the wicked seem to triumph. There's very few positive headlines in the newspapers. The whole circus surrounding this presidential election makes it apparent that we live in a time when the foundations are not just eroded, they're not just crumbling, the foundations of this country are destroyed. I'm sorry, they just are. The best... I mean, we, the Republican Party is just as evil as the Democrat Party. We don't have anything to choose from anymore. We're living in a time where a man can get married to a man, where if you don't agree with that, you can get in legal trouble, where we're, we're starting to say just because you think you're a woman, that makes you a woman. I guess I could just believe that I'm a, I'm a five-foot-tall Chinese man, and I guess it makes it right. And how dare you question me? If I believe I'm five foot tall and that I'm a Chinese man, well, then I am. Common sense has gone out the window. The foundations, the moral foundations of this country have been destroyed. What can the righteous do? I don't have an answer to that question. I don't know the answer, what the righteous can do. That's the question the psalmist asks. What can the righteous do? And I hear this verse, verse 3, quoted a lot by itself. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? I believe it was John Adams that said, he was our second president. He was a prominent figure in the founding of this country. He said that the constitution of this country was meant for a moral people. It doesn't work for a people that's not moral. It won't work. It's meant for a moral people. The Constitution doesn't work today because we're not a moral people. There's no self-restraint. So it's not worth the paper it's written on. So the very things our founding fathers said are coming true. The foundations have been destroyed. It's meant for a moral people. Democracy doesn't work when there's no morality. Now we have mob rule. The foundations have been destroyed. What can the righteous do? I've often heard that verse cited by itself out of its whole context when referring to the state of this country today. I must admit I often ask myself, what can the righteous do? And I feel depressed and discouraged and I don't know what the answer is. 
There have been times when literally, whether it's on the mission field or here, in all honesty, there have been times when I have desired to die in my service to the Lord, just like Elijah did. Very frustrating. Very frustrating. I'm reminded of a story from the Chronicles when a righteous king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, was in a place he didn't know what to do. And he flat out said, I don't know what to do. Turn to 2 Chronicles, um, I believe it's chapter 20. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Jehoshaphat was the son of Asa, who was a righteous king. I believe it was Asa, the one who was diseased in his feet toward the end of his life. And he didn't even ask the Lord to help him. He put all his trust in the doctors. Didn't even ask the Lord. Didn't even take time to ask him. And Brother Mike and I were talking about that this morning. And I was just encouraged because Mike didn't want to do anything that would ever let down the Lord or reflect a lack of faith in the Lord. And if you have a pastor that's willing to suffer physically for the sake of honoring the Lord, that's a treasure. You ought to be thankful for that. And we were talking about that passage. And I said, Brother, it says that the king didn't seek the Lord at all. He just sought the doctors. It, you need to go to the doctor have this checked out. That doesn't mean you're not seeking the Lord. You're just going to get a doctor's opinion. You are seeking the Lord. You have been seeking the Lord. You have been asking Him what you should do. You have been praying about this. You're not like that. You're not like that king. So it was a good conversation that kind of came up, but that was related to what I was going to talk about tonight. It was interesting. But Jehoshaphat followed in the ways of his father, King Asa, and he was a righteous king. Now the prophet rebuked him because he made friends with the wicked King Ahab in the northern kingdom. It's kind of interesting right before this chapter where he finds himself in a situation that he doesn't know what to do. It says that a prophet named Jehu, the son of Hanani, came and rebuked him because of his alliance with the wicked king Ahab and asked him a question. Second uh, Chronicles 19 verse 2, Should thou help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord? Therefore is wrath upon thee from before the Lord. That's the question we ought to ask ourselves in this day and time. Should we be people who help the ungodly and love those that hate the Lord? Is that the type of people Christ has called us to be? We love our enemies. But do we love and fawn over those people that hate the Lord? Absolutely not. God sent judgment upon Jehoshaphat for buddying up with that wickedness in the northern kingdom. And God's going to send judgment on the church here in America for buddying up with the homosexual agenda, for buddying up with the abortion industry, for buddying up with liberal politicians, for buddying up with the Republican Party, for buddying up with rabbinic Judaism, throwing our money over there to fund a temple that's going to be built for Antichrist. God's going to hold us accountable for that. We love our enemies by praying for our enemies and telling them the truth, not by buddying up to them and ignoring their own destruction like King Jehoshaphat did here with King Ahab. So the king is rebuked. Now a lot of times when we're rebuked of the Lord or we're rebuked by a man of God, we get offended and we get defensive and we get angry, we pick up our ball and go home, and we have an attitude for sometimes years. And God's not able, God doesn't use us. We're ineffective.
because we get our feelings hurt. Obviously, Jehoshaphat didn't get his feelings hurt too bad. He must have repented because it tells us immediately after that that he makes it a point to turn the people of the land back to the Lord. He goes around and he tears down the altars and he travels around and he encourages the people to follow the Lord. So he had a right uh, response to a rebuke from the prophet. He got right and he was a righteous king. And he told the people, deal courageously, be honest in your doings and the Lord will be with you for good. He was a godly man, a godly king. But when you get into chapter 20, it says that the land of Judah was invaded by a great host of people from Moab, Ammon, and, 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 and Edom, or Mount Seir. Edom were the descendants of Esau. Moab and Ammon were the descendants of Lot. Okay? They were the people that wouldn't let Israel pass through the land when they were coming up through, uh, from the wilderness. And God told the, Jewish, uh, the, uh, his, the Israelites not to mess with them. But they invaded Judah in the days of Jehoshaphat, a large host, crossed the Jordan River and were gathered down near En Gedi. En Gedi is where David hid from Saul uh, when he was being pursued. And Saul turned aside to one of the caves to use the restroom and David cut off a piece of his skirt. Ricky and I kind of hiked up to that cave uh, back in February where that happened. It was kind of interesting. But this large host uh, had crossed the Jordan River to invade Judah, and Jehoshaphat was, was afraid. He was afraid. It says in verse 3 of chapter 20, And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaim a fast throughout all Judah. Why, why doesn't the church in America take that strategy to heart today? We look at our country, instead of supporting Republicans or worrying about delegates or this or that, why don't we proclaim a fast and seek the Lord? Get on our faces. I think that would go farther, way farther than a vote would on November 4th, but we don't even think like that anymore. I guess we're too smart for that. But it says, All of Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord. And then Jehoshaphat prays to God. And um, if you go down to verse 12, he admits, We have no might against this great company that's come to invade us, that cometh against us. Neither know we what to do. We don't know what to do. He didn't know what to do. But our eyes are upon thee. God, we don't know what to do, but we're, our eyes are on you. Psalm 11, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? I think the answer to that question is nothing. Just put our eyes on Him. Keep reading the psalm. Can't stop at verse 3. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Here's the answer to the question. Here's the answer. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, His eyelids try the children of men. That's the answer. When the foundations are destroyed and the righteous don't know what to do, the fact remains that God is in His holy temple. God sits upon His throne and He sees everything. And He doesn't forget. That's the answer. As we see all of these things falling around, as King Jehoshaphat saw them in great danger and admitted he didn't know what to do, let us be those that just put our eyes on God. He's on His throne. He controls it all. We know what's going to happen. It's already been written. 
The answer is God is in his heaven. He's on his throne. If you go back and continue reading in that story in 2 Chronicles, it's interesting because the king tells God, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. In verse 13 of chapter 20, And all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones and with their wives and with their children. And then God speaks to the people through the prophet who was there. A Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaniah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, a Levite, of the sons of Asaph. The sons of Asaph wrote some of the Psalms. Uh, He spoke up. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him in that moment in the middle of the congregation. This is what God said to the people. The end of verse 15. Be not afraid nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours. It's God's. Then he told them what to do. Verse 17. You shall not need to fight. In this battle, set yourselves, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord. We don't know what to do, God, but we're looking at you. God says, this isn't your battle. It's mine. You don't need to fight this battle. You just need to stand still and watch, and I'll deliver you. And then as we go on to read... The people went down and saw the armies gathered against them and then the Lord sent a spirit down there and they turned against each other. Ammon and Moab got mad at the people of Edom for some reason and got in a big fight and killed them and then Moab and Ammon turned on themselves and they all killed each other. And so by the time it was over, you had a bunch of dead bodies laying down there in the desert and Jehoshaphat and the people of Judah just went down there and spoiled them. They had all this gold, jewelry and money and it was free for the taking. So they just went down and found a bunch of corpses and spoiled them and went back to Jerusalem with lots of blessings and riches. Didn't even have to lift a finger. Didn't have to even unsheathe a sword. God took care of it. That reminds me of what God did on the shores of the Red Sea when Israel fled Pharaoh and his armies. They were hemmed in by the mountains and on the sea and they had nowhere to go. And the people began to murmur and say to Moses, why have you brought us out here? You should have just let us die in Egypt. And Moses said, stand still. Don't worry. You don't even have to fight. The Lord will fight for you. Just be still and see the salvation of the Lord. And we know that God did fight. Israel, all they had to do was walk across dry land. Pharaoh was never able to catch him. And when they finally got out of the Red Sea on the other side and his army was pursuing, the waters came crashing down. And that was the end of the matter. I'm convinced that for us, the church living in these dark days, that's the example we need to follow. We don't need to fight this battle. We speak the gospel. We, the greatest revenge that we can execute upon the enemies of God in this country is to continue to read God's Word to continue to teach it to our children, despite what the government says or what society says, to continue to live upstanding lives, to gather together as believers in fellowship, to enjoy the blessings of God, and to stand true to this word regardless of what anybody else does. That's the best revenge there is. Because they can't make us stop believing the Bible. They can take everything from us, but they can't make us stop believing it. 
That's the greatest revenge. Stand still and let God fight. If the foundations be destroyed, Psalm 11, what can the righteous do? I don't think the righteous need to do anything. The Lord's on His throne. He's in His holy temple. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. That doesn't mean we stand still and we're lazy and we don't do the things God's called us to do regardless of what society has done. We're called to preach the gospel. We're called to labor and go out into the harvest. The best way we wait for our Lord to come is to labor and occupy. We just keep doing what we've always done or what we're supposed to have always done. But as far as the battle, as far as the crumbling of the foundations, we're not called to fight. We don't have to. God will fight for us. It's a frustrating thing to see the wicked prosper. It's a frustrating thing to see those that hate the Lord seem to uh, triumph and conquer. and They seem to be blessed by, in their efforts, and yet the righteous suffer. That's the age-old paradox that many people have tried to answer throughout the years. This was the great paradox that was discussed throughout the book of Job. But the reality is that God is on His throne. And He knows everything. And everything will be made right, whether it's tomorrow or a thousand years from now. It won't matter two thousand years from now because it will have been made right, whether it's tomorrow or some distant point in the future. I'm reminded of what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes. Now, Solomon, he messed up big time. He feared the Lord. He loved women. He had a lot of wives and concubines. He wanted to please his wives. And so he allowed them to start worshiping their false gods and kind of turned a blind eye. Idolatry came into the land. And for that reason, the kingdom was split. And he learned some hard lessons. Now, at the end of his life, he realized that he had messed up big time. And he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes in which he revealed the vanity of so many things this world has to offer. But if you turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 8, um, he has something to say about the wicked when they triumph. Ecclesiastes 8, 11, I'll go through verse 13. Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, Therefore, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Is that not a picture of what we see here in America today in terms of the legal system? Speedy execution against crime ceased long ago. Now people commit crimes and they sit in the prisons for years. They get television, they get video games, they get a weight room. And in many ways, their accommodations are better than a lot of hard-working Americans. There's no speedy judgment anymore. And what happens when there's not speedy judgment against wickedness in a society? It says the heart of men then becomes fully set to do evil. There was no judgment, righteous judgment spoken last year when the, when the uh, issue of, of, of uh, homosexual marriage was before the Supreme Court. Those cowards on the Supreme Court didn't choose to side with morality and common sense. They chose to side with society. And as a result, what has happened since then? Was it really only about homosexual marriage? No. As a result, the heart of men in this country is fully set to do evil. And what was once about the right of a man to marry a man is now about, you're not a man, you're not a woman, whatever you want to be, you are. 
If you consider yourself a woman and you're a man biologically, it's okay. You can go in a bathroom. If you have desires to be with children, nothing wrong with that. That's the way you were made. You can't help it. That's what happens when morality crumbles and law is not set in order to execute sentence against injustice. It's written right here. But he goes on to say, though a sinner, in verse 12, do an evil a hundred times, and though his days be prolonged, yet surely I know that it shall be well with them that fear God, which fear before Him. Though a sinner does do the same thing a hundred times, and though he seems to prosper, and though the wicked seem to prosper and have victory left and right and take over society, and though the righteous foundations are crumbled, what does Solomon the king say? Yet surely I know that it will be well with them that fear God. Despite what's happening today, I know that it will be well with you that fear God. Regardless of what seems to be happening out here, it is well with those that fear God. Verse 13, but it shall not be well with the wicked, neither shall he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he feareth not God. Though the wicked prosper for a hundred years, his days are still as a shadow. What's a hundred years in view of eternity? Whether judgment comes tomorrow or a hundred years from now, it's still judgment. And those days are still a shadow. And ultimately it will not be well with him. We can have great comfort in this truth. All of this we see happening right now is just a shadow. And at some point, it'll be a thing of the past. And those that prosper in their wickedness today won't glory in it when God says it's enough. We can rest in those truths. The question is, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? The answer is, don't worry. Stand still. God's in His temple. God's on His throne in heaven. He sees everything that the children of men do. He knows what these wicked politicians have done behind closed doors. He knows the wicked uh, 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 Satan worship that goes on in the, in the halls of our government. He knows the sexual perversion that goes on in our government. He knows the wickedness, the wicked thoughts of these evil, empty-robed demons sitting on our Supreme Court. He knows the wickedness of these candidates parading themselves as conservatives and Republicans. He knows it all. His eyelids try, and he sits on his throne. Evil will not prosper. God will prosper. His kingdom will arise, and his saints will rule and reign with him. Whether that's tomorrow or 10,000 years from now, it's still certain, and it's still victory, and it still, still calls for comfort. I don't believe it's 10,000 years from now. The prophet Daniel defined the last days as days when men are running to and fro, traveling, 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 traveling all over the place, and technology or knowledge is increased. That's how the last days are described. That word knowledge in Daniel means technology. We live in a day when people run to and fro like never before. And when technology is so increased that it's a burden and a dependence. We're living in the last days. That natural bud, that natural branch Israel is budding again. The church is in apostasy. We're in Laodicea. The foundations are crumbling. Things are ripe for the rise of Antichrist. 
The foundations appear to have been destroyed. But the ultimate foundation is the foundation that God laid when He created the world. And He created the world to be inhabited and He created it so that Messiah would reign upon it for a thousand years. And then He's going to recreate everything, a new heavens and a new earth, without even the presence of sin. So all of those things are purposed. Evil must run its course, but God sits on His throne. I'll go ahead and read the rest of the psalm. The Lord tries the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. That's pretty bold there, my friends. God does hate. It says in Psalm 5, it's a pretty interesting character sketch of the Antichrist there from the prophetic perspective. It says in Psalm 5, 5, The foolish shall not stand in thy sight, thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Now that doesn't fit the theology of modern day churchianity, but God does hate. He hates the workers of iniquity. It says here in Psalm 11, He hates the wicked and them that love violence. It's true. But see, God's hatred is not like ours. Ours is emotional. We hate based on emotion and selfishness. God's not like that. God can hate and yet love. God's hatred is rooted in righteousness. It doesn't change. It doesn't waver back and forth. But God does hate. Verse 6, Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire, and brimstone, and a horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. As we sit back and ponder what we see here in America and the wickedness all around, just know that there's a day coming when upon these wicked, the Lord will rain snares, fire and brimstone, and a horrible tempest. This is their portion. That's the portion of the wicked. This reference to snares, fire, brimstone, a horrible tempest, we see that fulfilled in the, second, the sixth trumpet judgment in the book of Revelation. So there is a prophetic element here. A horrible um, judgment coming from God in which even the forces of evil under the earth are unleashed on mankind. Praise God the church is not appointed to wrath. It's not appointed to wrath. Antichrist can't arise until the restrainer is taken out of the way. You know the only reason why Evil doesn't have a full course run in this country today. It's because there's still a restrainer restraining evil on this earth. In 2 Thessalonians, the restrainer is referred to simultaneously in a verse as what and as, as both what and he. It's called what, an it, and he, a person. There is a restrainer. And until the restrainer is taken out of the way, the man of sin cannot arise. Well, who is the restrainer? It's the Holy Spirit. Not just the Holy Spirit, but the church that is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. If you turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul's talking about the man of sin. He says in uh, uh, verse 6 of chapter 2, And now you know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. That is the man of sin. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he 
who now ledeth. That word let means to restrain. Only he who now ledeth will led, or he who now restrains will restrain until he be taken out of the way. So there is a he that withholds and there's a what that withholds. The what is a reference to the church. And the he is a reference to the Holy Spirit that indwells the church. The fact that we're here today, my friends, even though the foundations are crumbling, is a restraint upon evil. We can rest in that. Evil doesn't have full run because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in the church in this world. But there's coming a day when the what, the church, and the he, the Holy Spirit that lives within the church are going to be taken out of the world. And when that happens, there's no more restraint. Wicked has a full course. Jesus said there'll be tribulation such as never has been seen on this planet from day one. What's the purpose of all that tribulation? Well, it's God's wrath upon the wicked. And it's going it's to take that to wake up the nation of Israel to, that they recognize that Jesus is their Messiah. But the presence of the righteous in the form of the church today is a restraint. And it, just our being here is a restraint. And there's coming a day when the what will be taken out. I look forward to that day. I hope it's tonight. But until such time, praise God, our presence here is a restraint on evil. And there's an opportunity for people to hear the gospel. In the tribulation, God's going to finish what He started with the church through Israel. There'll be, Israel, there'll be Jewish witnesses that God seals, 144,000. They're going to complete the job of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And they're going to preach to a lot of Gentiles. And there's going to be a lot of Gentiles from a lot of tribes, tongues, and nations that hear the gospel. That's the fruit of their ministry. And they're saved. Now, they pay for it with their lives. They pay for it with their lives. But they're saved in tribulation. We read about that in Revelation 7. But those Gentiles that are saved, that listen to the preaching, it's not going to be very many of them here in this country because it's not people that have heard the gospel clearly. You keep reading in 2 Thessalonians where I was just a moment ago, you'll see that those who heard the truth and had an opportunity to believe the truth but chose not to, during those days of Antichrist, God's going to send a delusion. They're going to believe a lie because they refuse to hear the truth. So don't bank on, well, if this is all of the, you know, where your family or friends or yourself is concerned, well, if the rapture happens tonight and I don't get gone, then, you know, I'll just get saved, I'll believe then. Don't bank on it. Those populating our churches today that aren't any more saved than this bench here, that love evil, that have all kinds of reasons for going to church and none of them are righteous, those folks are going to bow down to Antichrist just like the wicked. And they'll be deceived. There'll be people saved, but it's going to be people that have not heard the gospel. But we are a restrainer. And just... Our presence as a light restraining evil ought to give us encouragement when the foundations are crumbling. Verse 7, the last verse here of this psalm. The righteous Lord loves righteousness. His countenance doth behold the upright. The wicked prosper. They've bent their bow. The foundations are destroyed. What can the righteous do? God's in His heaven. God's on His temple. And God will judge the wicked. And God still loves righteousness. None of that ever changes. It doesn't matter what happens in this country. 
It doesn't change that God will judge the wicked and God loves righteousness. What is righteousness? What is righteousness? You can just go right across a couple columns to Psalm 15. It defines righteousness. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? Psalm, uh, David writes in Psalm 15. He that walks uprightly. We have 11 traits of a righteous man here. He that walks uprightly. He that works righteousness. Speaks truth in his heart. How many of us will speak truth with our mouth, but we're not speaking it in our heart? We say things that we don't really believe. Shouldn't be that way. If I don't really believe what I'm speaking to you tonight, then I'm not speaking truth in my heart. That's not righteousness. If I really do believe them, then I'm going to speak to you with authority. You know what, you know what made Jesus, the people so curious about Jesus when He preached? It says He spoke with authority. Not like the scribes, but He also used gracious words. That means He didn't... He didn't Beat around the bush, he spoke bluntly, but he did it graciously. That's something we can all strive for. So many today don't speak with authority when they stand behind a pulpit. They mealy mouth around, beat around the bush, or they give you a little, little, little ditty about hoping and coping. They don't want to tell you straight up what God's Word said. That's not speaking truth in the heart. If I truly believe what I'm sharing with you all tonight, I ought to be speaking with authority. And if I don't, then I don't believe it in my heart. That's not righteous. What else is righteousness? He that backbites not with his tongue. The righteous don't backbite. Nor doeth evil to his neighbor. Nor takes up a reproach against his neighbor. In whose eyes a vile person is contemned. Did you know that a righteous man looks at vile evil and is vexed by it? He doesn't see it as no big deal. He doesn't see it as, oh, that's just what they want to do. It's their right. I'm not going to judge. When Lot dwelt in Sodom, it said his soul was vexed day and night because of the wicked. A truly righteous person looks at the vile, all this vile homosexuality, all this vileness in the abortion industry, all this vileness in politics. And in his eyes, those things are contemned. They're seen for what they are. They make him disgusted. That's the mark of a righteous man. A vile person is contemned, but he honors them that fears the Lord. Righteousness honors those that fear the Lord. He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. That's, that's one we forget about a lot. Gone are the days when a man's word is his bond. A righteous man, when he gives his word, he won't change even if it hurts him financially or physically. It's really bothered me over the years in ministry. I've had people come up, not because I asked. You know that's not our manner. But I've had people come up to me after I speak and say, Hey, you know, the Lord laid it upon my heart. He wants me to give this to your ministry. We're going to give this amount of money to your ministry. And I'm like, no, I really appreciate that. But I never see a check. never comes. Blows my mind. Why would you come up and tell me that? If you're not going to do it, why would you tell me? Why not just keep quiet and nobody would, you know, it would be fine. But it's happened time and time and time again. When we were putting together our team this summer to go over to South Asia to do Israeli outreach, we were 
looking at several different applications. And we had a girl from, uh, uh, she wasn't American, she, or she's American, but she was from up in Canada, and she was, um, had applied for the job, and she looked really qualified. She was an older lady, had a great testimony, had, had some outreach experience with Jews. Really good application, and we decided we wanted her on the team. So we called her, we did an interview with her, and she accepted the offer. And I asked her plainly, do, am I understanding that you are committing to this team for the summer? She said, I am committed. It was in the presence of myself and one of our trustees. Not a week later, I got an email from this girl. She said, I'm backing out. I don't have a piece from the Lord about going. And I, said, I wrote back, I said, man, I said, does it not occur to you that when as a Christian you give your word that the right thing to do is to honor it. And then I quoted this passage from Psalm 15. I said, in other words, you're making decision upon some feeling that you think is from God, which may or may not be from God, but you're ignoring the fact that you gave your word. Righteousness swears to his own hurt and doesn't change. And she was just kind of like, well, I just don't feel a peace, but I may be open to doing it next year. I said, ma'am, I don't mean to be rude, but you're not the type of person we're looking with to ever serve with us. I don't think we have a place for you to serve with us because you don't think, you think it's okay to change when you give your word. Righteousness swears to its own hurt. When we give our word, we need to keep it, even if it costs us something. He that puts not out his money to usury, nor taketh reward against the innocent, he that doeth these things shall never be moved. That's a picture of of the fruit of righteousness. That ought to be the fruit of our lives who have been declared righteous by God on the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ and our faith in that, His death, burial, and resurrection. That's the fruits of righteousness. And it says that God loves righteousness. The world may love homosexual marriage. The world may love all this transgender garbage. The world may love politics. The world may love abortion. The, the world may love violence. The world may love all this garbage on television. But God loves righteousness. And regardless of what our society says, regardless of what some empty robes at a Supreme Court say, regardless of what some presidential candidate said, or what the governor of the state says, we know what God loves. It's righteousness. And righteousness is defined here. Let's live by these things regardless of what falls around us. What's of even more, um, uh, what, what, what's, uh, what's even more so than what is defined here in Psalm 15 is what God told Abraham in Genesis 15. This goes back to what Ricky was talking about this morning concerning the covenants. God told Abraham, made Abraham a promise. God told Abraham what he was going to do, gave his word to Abraham. And in verse 6 of chapter 15, this is what it says about Abraham. He believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. Ultimately, righteousness is counted when we take God at His word. God loves those who believe Him when He gives His word. God made a promise to Abraham. No, Abraham didn't deserve it. Yes, Abraham messed things up several times. 
He took matters into his own hands thinking, okay, God's going to give me a seed. I have no idea how in the world my elderly wife would give birth. So maybe I... And then Sarah talked him into going into their, to, to her mistress or his mistress Hagar. And then he had a son, Ishmael. And that stupid decision is responsible for all that garbage going on in the Middle East today between Jews and Arabs. That wouldn't even be here if Abraham would have just not tried to take matter in his own hands. Yeah, he messed up from time to time. But believe it. But in the end, he believed God, took him at his word, and it was counted to him for righteousness. That's what God does. When we believe upon Him and what He has said and declared concerning Jesus Christ the Messiah, when we believe upon what Jesus did, His death, burial, and resurrection, God counts that as righteousness. And our sins are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And the fruits of righteousness, like what I just read in Psalms, are ultimately born in us. Not to save us, but because we are saved. In Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul over in Romans cites this very thing regarding Abraham, this very verse. And it's kind of interesting because back in February, um, we, had, we, we took two brothers over to Israel to kind of give them a tour of the land. Both of them are in ministry. And we were just hoping that a little experience, giving them a tour of the land, showing them the places in the Bible, going out and sharing the gospel with the Jews there would just... Just strengthen them in their ministries. One of them is a street preacher. The other does some work in the inner city. And just, we wanted to strengthen their ministries. And they came alongside us. And that's something we're hoping we can do kind of annually is try to find some young men in ministry and take them over there and give them an opportunity to share the gospel in the land of the Bible and strengthen them so they can come back and keep doing what God's called them to do. But we had a great time with these two gentlemen from California. Then they went home. My wife came over. And we were um, going around, and the last place we went before we flew out was down to Hebron. Hebron is the place where David reigned over Israel for seven years before he moved to Jerusalem. It's a place where Abraham dwelt when he was in the land. And the oldest religious monument in the entire world is in Hebron. It's been there over 3,000 years. It's the burial cave of Abraham and Sarah. Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Leah are all buried there. Now, the cave is down under the ground. They've actually, the Jews have snuck in there at night and have actually found it. There's a testimony about it on the wall. But it's an interesting place because Hebron is a Palestinian city. It's all Muslims. It's a dangerous place for Israelis to be. But there's a little enclave down in, it's all built on the hill. And there's a little enclave down in the bottom where the tomb of the patriarchs is, or the Machpelah Cave, what it's called in Genesis. It's a Jewish neighborhood. And there's a lot of Israeli soldiers there to protect the people. And it's kind of a scary place. But in the cave or the tomb of the patriarchs, it's a huge building that's been added to over the years. And the Muslims have controlled it. And one half of it, the Muslims go in to see the tombs of Abraham. And then the Jews go in on the other side. It's a crazy place. There's one, uh, one window you can look through. There's bulletproof glass there. And you can look through and see the Muslims, the people that want to kill all the Jews over there, right through the window, the ones that want to kill us too. And we're standing on the other side. I mean, it's just a crazy tension that you don't see anywhere else. But it's a, it's a building, and, and the lower walls and the floor date back to the time of King Herod. So you're actually walking on a Herodian floor where even back in Jesus' day there was a monument built acknowledging this is the place 
where the patriarchs were buried. And Herod built these these stones on top of where they, you know, honoring those six, uh, those three patriarchs and those three matriarchs. And now the, the the Muslims have the Arabic prayer rugs draped over them. But the cave has actually been found. But we went in there on the Jewish side, uh, and you go through a Jewish community. And you come out the gate and you have to drive about a mile, about one mile actually in uh, Palestinian Hebron to get down there. So it's really sketchy. The Palestinians are crazy. They'll throw rocks at you. And we had a rental car with an Israel tag on it. And it was just like, man, this is, I don't know if we should be. So we're just kind of holding our breath as we go down the road. And then we get around the corner and there's the Israeli soldiers. And we're like, okay, we're safe now. We had to eventually drive out, but um, we went down there, and we went, we would go in and just try to talk to some of the soldiers and, and about Jesus, about the Messiah. We would put some New Testaments in there. There's lots of prayer books and stuff. But we walked into the room where Abraham, above where Abraham is buried, and there were some of the religious Jews in there rocking back and forth and saying their prayers and all of this. And they read stuff out of the Psalms. And so we just thought, we're going to walk in here. We're going to give a testimony. So I read Genesis 15 where God, it said Abraham believed God and God counted it to him for righteousness. And then I turned over to Romans 4 and I read from the New Testament in there. I don't know if God used it or not, but we were going to give declaration right then and there of Jesus the Christ, right in Abraham's tomb, one of the holiest sites in all of rabbinic Judaism and Islam. And it says here um, in Romans chapter 4 that um, uh, let's see here. Verse 1, What shall we say then that Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he have whereof to glory, but not before God. What says the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. And then I just continued reading the chapter in that place, and I got down to the end of it. And said in verse 23, now, and I'm standing here with all of these religious Jews around, and I say, now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also. And I just said, even us Gentiles, Ricky. I just said that loud enough to be heard. But for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, if we believed on him that raised up Jesus. And I said, Yeshua HaMashiach which means Jesus the Messiah in Hebrew, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered from our offenses and was raised again for our justification. And then I closed the book and we walked out. <laughs> so it was an interesting testimony, but that's righteousness. Jesus fulfilled the law. He is righteousness and righteousness in the flesh without sin, tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. And for those of us that believe God and His testimony concerning Messiah, God counts that as righteousness. And upon that justification, God gives us His Holy Spirit who in turn empowers us to bear fruit of righteousness like what's written here in Psalm 15. Those things are true and remain true regardless 
of what happens to the foundations and the moral fabric of this country. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. That's the answer. A lot of times when you read the Psalms, you can look at Psalm 13 as an example of this. The psalmist starts out with his feelings. And he's wrestling back and forth. But then he comes to a moment of realization where he wakes up and he shifts from his feelings to what he knows to be true. That's what you have here in Psalm 11. Man, the foundations are destroyed. What can the righteous do? Wait a minute. God's in His temple. God's on His throne. He sees everything. He loves righteousness. He's going to judge the wicked. As we wrestle through these things and struggles in our Christian life as the world is falling apart, may we have that moment where we wake up and say, wait a minute. God's on His throne. Jesus said, I'll build my church and not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for me. I'll come to receive you again. God said, all things would be made right. The Bible says Christ will rule and reign and His saints will reign with Him. Let's wake up and remember those things. The darker the days get, the more the foundations crumble and are destroyed. The more we ask, what can we do? What we can do is remember what God said. Believe it, knowing that believing God, believing Him is counted for righteousness. So as you study the Psalms, see, see here the psalmist, he's talking about his feelings and then he has a wake up moment where his feelings are replaced by his beliefs. A lot of times our feelings don't agree with our beliefs. They don't agree with what God has said in his word, but the word remains true despite our feelings. That's what marriage is supposed to be. You know, marriage is not supposed to be based on feeling. Love is not supposed to be based on feeling. If, when I, if I went on my feelings every Monday morning, I'd drop dead in this life. The love that a husband is to have for his wife is to be a picture of God's love, Christ's love for the church. It's unconditional. It's based upon a commitment, not upon a feeling. Don't let our feelings get us discouraged and turn us away from the things of God. Let's focus upon what we believe know to be true. You can see this in the prophets as well. Jeremiah the prophet. Lamentations. Lamentations chapter 3. Going on and on about how terrible things were. And they are terrible. They were terrible in his day. He saw the destruction of Jerusalem. The thing he had labored his entire life to warn the people against. Jeremiah labored and labored and labored and no one listened to him but a few people. Just a couple of people. And he's going and remembering all of this stuff in Lamentations 3, his feelings. I've forgotten prosperity. My strength and my hope is perished. God has bent his bow. He has caused his arrows to enter into me. I was a derision to the people. He's filled me with bitterness. I feel drunk. I'm afflicted. I'm miserable. His feelings. But then in verse 20 of chapter 3, he wakes up. But my soul has them still in remembrance. I remember. I'm humbled. My soul is humbled within me. This I recall to my mind. Therefore I have hope. It's of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy. 
That's where that old hymn comes from. Great is thy faithfulness. It comes from Lamentations chapter 3. Jeremiah's in a terrible situation and he remembers that God's mercies are new. His compassions don't fail. His faithfulness is great. The psalmist remembers that God loves the righteous, that He sits on His throne, that His eyelids try, that He is in control. Let us remember those things as we endeavor to endure in these dark days. I'm sorry I ran a little bit long, but uh, I hope that was an encouragement to you tonight. We do appreciate you all. It's always an honor to be with you, and um, thank you for your support as a church. I pray we've been found faithful stewards and so it's it's been of a long time a lot of changes in this church over the years it's some of it's sad um you know a lot of a lot of uh, trials and tribulations particularly with those that have come and shepherded the flock here and people have come and gone but there's a remnant and uh, i thank god for you all so thanks for the opportunity to share with you god bless you should I just close us in prayer, brother? You guys? Well, I'll just close you all in prayer. It's a little bit late. Thank the Lord. It's still light outside. I love these days when the, uh, it's, it's light when we finish and we don't have to go home in the dark. Well, I'll just close us. Thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you for the promises of your word. I pray, Lord, that you would, in the midst of our feelings, the ones we wrestle with, Lord, the ones we struggle with, that you would help us to recall to our mind what we know to be true, what's been written in your word. Lord, that you're on your throne. Even if all the earthly foundations be destroyed, the foundation of your, God, of your word, Lord, will not perish. We might wax old like a gar- garment, Lord, but you endure forever. You sit on your throne and you know everything that's happening here and you know um, the end of it all. May we find comfort and hope in those things. Help us to be a light that burns brightly, Lord. Our presence here as the church is a restrainer against evil, and may we remember that. May we be a bold testimony of the gospel. And I pray you continue to save people, that you'd be merciful to our country, Lord, that you would raise up righteous men to lead us, Father, that the people would humble themselves, Lord. Uh, wicked men are in government because the people love wickedness. Uh, the people aren't wicked because of the leaders. The leaders are wicked and in power because the people want that. And I just pray, Lord, that you would wake up this country and you'd have mercy upon us, Lord. Give us more time, Lord. Bring revival as you've done in the past, Lord. I pray for the church here that you would strengthen it. We lift up Brother Mike tonight. God, I ask that you would heal him, Lord. I pray that the, uh, the IV and the antibiotics would uh, zap that infection, Lord, and that he would be able to return home soon. Thank you for the timing, Lord, that it was discovered when it was, Lord. And I just pray that you would strengthen him through these trials and tribulations, Lord. We know that those who have led this church over the years have been attacked, Lord. And there's been a lot of uh, just difficult times, I think, about Brother Terry and uh, Brother Wesley and things over the years, Lord. But the church has endured. And, and I just pray for victory in this situation. And I pray for all of these brothers and sisters here tonight, Lord, that you would strengthen them in their walk, Lord, and that you would provide for their needs, heal them where their health is wavering, Lord, strengthen them in their spirit, give them comfort for those here that have family members that are lost, that they have prayed for for years and years and years, Lord, I ask that you would hear those prayers and that you would answer them, Lord, and that you would give them the desires of their heart in these matters, Lord. Father, we commit the rest of this day, the rest of our lives to you, and we look forward to when you will come in the clouds, that trumpet will sound, 
The dead in Christ shall rise first, and we that are alive and remain will be caught up together then with the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we be with the Lord forever. In Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen.